important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. They have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black woman. We're in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight back. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LP FM in New Orleans. If you are tuning in on 1230 AM WBOK, welcome to Resistance Radio. Welcome to WHIV. This is Mark Allendary. With me, as always, is one of my best friend, somebody who I love and admire greatly, Kenny Francis, who is looking as debonair uh, as <laughs> always. Uh, I can't make fun of him today because he actually, he's wearing nice. he's wearing my colors, which is black and all red. Black. That's right, yes. all black, uh, as, uh, I, as I always like to say. And as Kenny oftentimes, uh, probably of all the, the zingers that Kenny has given me, the one that stuck was the one when he told me that I look like a target version of Johnny Cash. And I, it still hurts. It still hurts. And I got people in the here right now that are laughing because yes. they know yes. that that one stung but uh, today i, I will say these shoes you got to say okay uh, yeah. i i wore okay. them i wore them he's got these one. like he's got these like gold these like gold <laughs> almost like platform shoes they're I'm called fe- creepers i'm feeling them though they're called creepers i'm, fe- I'm, feeling, I'm they're feeling these shoes punk rock um, uh, old old timey you know, shoes i'm on so. my fashion today after watching um oh i'm already forgetting his name from the from the oscars last night Oh, I didn't. I didn't watch the Oscars. Oh. How did you watch the How did you watch the Oscars? Because for oh, once, Spike Lee, you're talking because, about. Because for how once, how did you forget Spike Lee? Well, Do the right thing. Well, no, it wasn't. Spike, <laughs> it was. I wasn't gonna say Spike Lee. It's because, say the like, right thing. It's because for once, the Oscars weren't so white, uh, okay, and like a bunch it. of like people of color. What did won. you What did you think about the Green Book? Um, <laughs> well, <Yeah>. we want. <laughs> I think well, um, I was not gonna ask you. Yeah, but Green you Book. <laughs> what I, here's the things I was excited about from the Oscars uh, yesterday, and I'm not normally Oscars. A New Orleanian one. It's like a New Orleanian one. And yes. she like shout out New it was great. Yeah, her shoes um, were great. Speaking the pure, of shoes. the pure joy in the moment where 
um, Spike Lee and Black Klansman won for Best Adaptive Screenplay, and Sam Jackson just like couldn't contain it. He goes, and the winner is The House, Spike Lee. And he just like, <laughs> like all, like I have worked with a bunch of people that went to Morehouse, and there's right. like, you couldn't tell them nothing yeah, today. Really? That was, um, yeah. <laughs> and um, my absolute favorite favorite moment was Billy Porter's gown on the red carpet. Oh, I heard about that. Was yeah. amazing. Yeah, 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 and all yeah, I'm yeah. saying yeah. is, I need someone to find me that in red because red dress run is coming, and I'm not playing with you. No, 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 not red dress run. You need no, to wear yeah, no. like wait, let's wear red it out d- like at a WHIV event. Red dress run. You could be my slammed. date. I would love for you to be my date. We can go somewhere real nice and have no, you wear. <laughs> I need a better looking date than you, bro. Come on now. Come Wait, are on. you going back to calling me a target to Johnny Cash? <laughs> <laughs> All right. But anyway, like uh, I said, last last week we had a great show. We did. And that is up. We had Jason Williams. Thank you, Jason Williams, and Jason Williams staff, Katie and Keith, and everybody who got Jason on board with us. Uh, I'm actually still hearing about what had happened. There was an incident with a guy outside. Oh and yeah. And I'm um, actually some of the yeah, there that. was a couple so a couple of resistance radio listeners actually got arrested as well. Oh and, no. Yeah, that they were the ones that were filming. Oh, okay. And they were trying to get in and so there's been a little bit, you know, that for those of you uh, if any of those folks were were you, uh, thank you for doing great work and 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 standing up for your community and being and an activist. And as Jason said last week on the show when he came in, I need to apologize for being a little bit late. He was like there's much better way to use the resources for our cops than that. Right. Um, and you know, it's a sad thing to still see and it's a thing right. that needs to change. And it's in part the, of what he's talked about and like, codifying the way that we want to treat people and the way that we want our government to function. The one thing that I keep hearing about last week was the, that the vision that Jason had laid out and we're talking of course about Jason Williams, who's the president of city council of new Orleans, uh, his, his vision for what constitutional or just policing mm-hmm. looked like was one that, I could definitely get. You know what it behind. sounds like is actual accountability. Right. That's what it sounds like. And, it sounds and, like actual and, transparency. And accountability, and, and then not only that, but also determining new metrics, not looking at the gross number of, of, of prosecutions or of guilty pleas uh, or of plea deals or what have you. But do in the end, do we have safe streets? Do we have healthier people? Are we not incarcerating as many people? And are we finding resources that could better? And the, the fact that it was a homeless person who was having a mental health breakdown that ended up becoming a police, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, incident uh, that ended up bringing other people involved mm-hmm. really kind of shows how we can do better as a city and 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 just to see that vision laid out was really very positive and the last thing i'll add to that before we jump in yes with, we do um, have to jump our in guests guests. today because i know we have a lot to discuss today is i really really like and i would really encourage folks if you didn't listen to the episode to go back and listen to it and listen to the vision he lays out for what a progressive da's office looked like because like two of the things that jumped out to me was one when he talked about um, that you could still deal with things like petty crimes that are typically just like crimes of addiction or crimes of poverty um, and still have full restitution without felonizing people um, and with getting people the help and the support services that they need. And you can do that without putting people through the criminal justice system and without worsening mass incarceration and without worsening systemic racism that has led to that. Um, the second thing that he said that was sort of like related to that is he, when he described just like, all of the different parts and people that are involved, the lawyers, the judges, the, the deputy sheriff, the, sh- the, the sheriff's deputies, et cetera, that are involved in drug court, which is simply used to, um, to, to, to track the progress of people who've been ordered into treatment 
because of like charges that they've got. And it's like, why don't you just fund treatment right. and like challenging yeah. our city council and mayor to do that? Right. Like, yeah, let's spend right. a little bit less money in the jails. And how about we fund addiction beds? Cause like something that I know, cause a dear friend of mine does uh, addiction work, like works with the folks that, that are suffering from addiction in the city. And there aren't addiction beds in our city. Like currently, if you have like these issues, well, we do we do have addiction beds in the city. They're well, called, they're the called jail. jails. They're called the jail. Exactly. Right. But in terms of treatment, yes. we're talking about yes. addiction Effective treatment. treatment yes. You basically have to go to Baton Rouge to get treatment or jail. The only way to get treatment is to go right. to jail. Um. So how about we just fund it instead right. of having you don't you wouldn't need drug court right. if you just funded it. And right. so like. It was really great to hear him say that, and I would love to see some action from that right. from our local government. And you know, and, and one last point here, super last point, is that the and, and I've said this before that the largest mental health facility in the country is the LA County Jail, and uh, that's horrible. And that's certainly that's that, terrible. that needs to stop. So along those lines, did you have any any activist updates or anything that? No, to, it's Mardi Gras. No one's doing yeah. anything. <laughs> Hold on, real quickly. Um, was there anything to talk about about City Council? Uh, should we just like just do a one sentence like? I mean, can we even do it? Yeah, it's just no. the entry. I mean, if we're going to get into the entry thing, yeah. then like, okay. that's we're not going to. Okay. It is really, uh, so last week at the end of the show last week, uh, um, we, it was really a pleasure uh, to have on uh, Miss Rashida and, and, and John on, uh, and they uh, are from Undesigned, the red line, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. What Kenny and I did is after... Uh, after we went off air, they came on uh, stage and spoke for about another 20 minutes or so uh, last week at the Ace Hotel and gave us a really kind of a, a really great summary as to what Undesigned the Red Line is. And uh, ultimately, Kenny and I went on Friday. So today's show is actually, we actually have Miss Rashida here as well as John, and they're going to talk to us. I, we we went through, Kenny and I went through, looked at everything with them last week, and then recorded uh, what Kenny and I thought were kind of really the high points. And the whole thing is really, a high point so please we're going to definitely it's an incredible exhibit. right really have everybody yeah. if you have a chance please 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 yeah we're going to have please please go but just real quickly undesigned the red line is an interactive exhibit exploring the history of race class and u.s housing policy and how this legacy of inequality and exclusion and, and continues to shape our communities visitors to undesigned the red line are left with a strong impression of the historical forces that made up new orleans and other cities uh the way that they are now and so it's really a pleasure to have on Miss Rashida Williams, who's the assistant director of the Albert and Tina Small Center for Collaborative Design at Tulane University. Uh, and she has a background in architecture, urban design, as well uh, as uh, graphic design. And Rashida brings a dedicated desire to visually represent information that all uh, people uh, can access. John Sullivan is a senior program director. Wait, for she also has fantastic shoes. We have to know that. <laughs> she, uh, she also has fantastic shoes, as Kenny says. So Kenny. You know, for a person who uh, uh, I will say, you are very you you look at like the 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 fashion or the uh, the superficiality of people uh, for like a, for for a deep dude. Well, you don't dress fashionably; it doesn't show. <laughs> <laughs> like for a deep dude. <laughs> Uh, John Sullivan is the Senior Program Director uh, for State and Local Policy at Gulf Coast for Enterprise Community Partners. Uh, uh, Enterprise is a nonprofit that improves communities and people's lives by making well-designed homes affordable. It really is a pleasure. We, we need to jump right in. I'll have you guys just real quickly just say hello uh, to us and, and thank you guys for appearing on WHIV. Rashid, if you want to start, just say hello. And hello, everyone. Yes, thank you for appearing. Hello. Thank you all for having us today. 
Great. It's uh, we're gonna just jump right into it uh, because I think that kind of the work that you guys did uh, really just needs to. Uh, we just need to sit back and listen. Uh, something that I'm I, I do pretty easy, but it's harder for Kenny to sit back and listen. So we're <laughs> no something that Kenny and I have a hard time doing. So we're gonna start off the exhibit and we're gonna just basically what we're gonna do is we're gonna play the clips and then we're gonna talk about the things that you guys are talking about. And the reason why we're doing this is that we, you guys we recorded these one minute sound bites in the setting of the uh, of the small center uh, and so if you're tuning in you are listening to 102.3 WHIV this is Resistance Radio I'm Mark Allendary that's Kenny Francis uh, it's a pleasure to be streaming live also on 1230 AM WBOK and we are going to listen to the first uh, clip uh, clip number one which is what is redlining what is redlining uh, redlining was um, or, or is the you know, depriving credit, depriving lending to certain areas based on the racial composition of those areas. So in the 1930s, the federal government is um, coming out of the Great Depression. They're trying to invest in communities, invest in people. The social safety net is created at this time. And the federal government is going to be in the business of um, backing mortgages and really supporting incentivizing home ownership as a way for people to um, build up communities and build up um, their wealth. Um, while they're doing that, um, they're going to embed racial structures into that, those, those programs. So the Jim Crow era is in full effect this time. Jim Crow was a time where racism was embedded across all areas of society. So the federal government, as it's looking at where it's going to support homeownership and support loans, is going to be looking at the racial composition of those areas. They're going to be categorizing areas based on um, that racial composition and limiting where loans can go based on that. So to a large degree, redlining was a uh, mechanism uh, that the federal government used to essentially keep keep communities of color separate. I mean, is, is it just as simple as that? Just talk directly into the microphone. Yeah, More or less, yeah. I mean, they're they looking at um, where they're making investments in mortgages, where they want mortgages to go, where they want people, white people, to be buying homes. And they're assessing those areas based on who's living there, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what type of racial composition those, those neighborhoods have. Um, and so it's embedding at, at the beginning a system of uh, we, we want, you know, homeownership, uh, we, want, we want whites, particularly living in, in areas that are predominantly white or, or all white. Um, and, you know, we, we don't trust, uh, the government doesn't trust having, putting lending in those areas that were integrated at the time. And I think something that like really stood out at me when we when you were taking us through this part of the exhibit is that I had heard, and we talked about this on Friday, I had heard sort of like at a cursory level what redlining is, and I sort of like had like a basic knowledge of it was what it was. But I think of the many things I learned as we went through the exhibit with you guys, one of them that like was like particularly like elicited a visceral response for me was that this wasn't just sort of like your regular brand of like racism that was just like, we don't want black people to live in these neighborhoods. Like there was literally a manual that said, here's how you ensure in a step-by-step -step process. It was like basically like, you know, in the same way that I would write like a lesson plan for but, a teacher. It's like, yeah. here's a lesson plan on how to yeah. keep black people out of these but neighborhoods. to be clear, that manual 
that was from the FHA, right? The Federal Housing Authority. That was right. a, just to be clear, just to underscore the importance of Kenny's point, was that that was a manual that was written by the federal, federal government. government. Yeah. Right. Like had it, and like you said, it had explicit language in it about, you know, the, the language of redlining is hazardous infiltration of different races. Hazardous uh, infiltration. infiltration. <laughs> yeah. And, the name and, of my next band. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it actually had lines for, uh, you know, that said Negro, and it had lines that said, and you put, they would put a percentage next to that line. They had lines that said nationalities. They would put, you know, French, Italian, whatever. So it was explicitly being written down, you know, what the racial, you know, makeup of those areas w were, then that was being used to categorize those areas as either good or bad. And and also, just so that I also, it, using New Orleans as an example, I would imagine then what they did was they took some of the communities of color or some of the communities of some of the European immigrants and they put them in the, the nice places like Uptown or by the lake. That, that That's where they or put the... Riverbend. The, yeah, the Riverbend. That's where they put all those nice communities or all those... Uh, communities of color no that's not where they put those folks right, <laughs> right. not at all right so they right. ended up redlining was a way that they were able to also not only segregate communities but also left uh, property uh, in areas that were less desirable or more prone to flooding or what have you and to that point that you just made i think something that's so pronounced in new orleans is different from other cities is that given our geography of our city like it was literally the pe the white people with money were put on like safe high ground, right. and the yes, black people without money the were point. put in like yes. low lying right. areas that would wash right. away every single time there was a storm. Right. right. So like Look you see something like Ford. Katrina that we already know was a man made disaster, but it was also designed that way from the beginning to right. be a man made disaster when it eventually happened. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so uh, and just uh, before we go to the next clip, just what were so what and I know we're going to talk about this for a second. But the, the you know, the one thing that you mentioned and that we are all aware that wealth accumulation is mostly done through uh, property or through home ownership. And so the long lasting effects of redlining that have been happening uh, for century, a century and a half. Is I, is that how long redlining has been going on for about, or, you know, 150, yeah, 100, years, 100, yeah. Sure. Um, that, that has, that has left generations of people, generations, and let's just be honest, we're talking communities of color, generations of communities of color in poverty. Right. Right. And, and so that, that first step of the exhibit, we're making the point of, um, like you said, wealth uh, building being centered around home ownership in this country. And another component of, of wealth that maybe people don't think about all that often is it's a generational thing. So wealth gets passed down over generations. So at, at the time when the government is supporting the New Deal, it's coming out with programs to build up the American people, and home ownership is a big piece of that. Home ownership is going to be a big way to. Uh, to prop people up to, to, to you know, to, to help them build wealth. They're setting up a system where, you know, some people have access to it, uh, white people have access to it, and people of color don't have access to that that wealth building tool. Yes, and and uh, and 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 that is something that I think is covered very nicely. So, uh, at Undesigned, the red line. Uh, so the next uh, the next clip we're going to hear, we're going to hear from Miss Rashida, and we're going to hear about what is blockbusting. So, Rashida, you you ready to say a couple words? We're going to play the clip first, and then we're going to we're going to hear from Miss Rashida about what is blockbusting, and that's uh, was at Undesigned, the red line, uh, which is uh, 
now uh, at the small uh, center. What's the address of the small center? I didn't have it. Okay, we should do that. Yeah, wait. I'll what's the up. address? Okay, okay you're going to look it up. All right. Uh, so this is what is blockbusting. Busting was a practice where uh, white investors would come into a neighborhood and they would propagate to homeowners that there would be a lot of Negro infiltration in the neighborhood. Well, this was a capitalist practice used to get white homeowners to sell their properties for very low values so that the white investors could purchase those properties, have uh, have ownership of those properties, and then sell them at exorbitantly high rates to black families through contract buying. And that's just an example of one of the effects of redlining and how it was carried out. So, it, so explain. <laughs> well, let me just start by saying, um, so as John was saying before, um, the federal government decides that it wants to get into the real estate business and also it wants to reinvigorate the economy after the depression, World War One, what have you. So that's when we see the start of the subsidization of suburbia, which has a lot of different factors with a lot of different groups. And I feel like blockbusting had to do with getting people this mass exodus of people out of inner cities into the suburbs. And also, it was a capitalist practice as well for people to double down on the amount of um, revenue they would make from purchasing a property at a very low value and selling it at an extremely high value, which we see a semblance of today with gentrification. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think we see uh, pretty regularly. And and so these were practices that it almost just seems like are, you know, have not gone away you know to a large degree and have led to uh just this perpetuation of poverty amongst generations and again let's just be very clear by this we're talking uh almost explicitly amongst communities of color yeah john did you have anything to add to that or yeah i mean if, if you're talking about present day effects we still see the effects of redlining i mean you know redlining was officially uh made illegal back in the 60s with the housing um the fair housing act um but we still see it in in de facto form but if you look at lending rates and and lending denial rates mortgage denial rates to you know people of color versus you know whites and there there are clear disparities um and who's eligible for loans and where those those types of loans are going Right, and I think that you guys may have mentioned when Kenny and I came on Friday was uh, one of the effects of redlining as well was um, the different types of mortgages that are available uh, that, uh, you know, for different communities, you may have mortgages that are more favorable, right, that have maybe lower interest rates or that, you know, I'm not a mortgage person, so I don't know what the the anatomy is or the the pathology or breakdown of of the mortgages, but I do understand that you have mortgage rates that would be favorable to communities and then you would have mortgage rates that are not favorable to communities i know that communities of color are preyed upon by by lenders and and unscrupulous lenders and to a large degree i think that's what the subprime issue uh if if i understand correctly had something to do with as well sure and so you know when you talk about redlining and and the you know the redlining maps they're setting up a system where the 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 most favorable loans that have the lowest interest rates that are backed by the federal government are only available in white communities. Um, and that's not to say other types of loans weren't available to people of color um, or, or, you know, those places that were redlined, but they are, um, I made the comparison to subprime loans, but they're way worse than subprime loans. I mean, think about a, uh, an era where regulation was, 
either non-existent or the enforcement was non-existent. And people, you know, people of color were always being exploited um, by lenders. You mean like selling of what was supposed to be affordable housing to black residents seeking home ownership in a place called Gordon Plaza that turned out to be a toxic waste dump? <laughs> I think and that, then letting that, them that live there for sure. 40 years and then right. denying them the justice they deserved. That, yeah, that, exactly. that, that falls, that, that, that qualifies. So that's actually a great segue to Cleveland. Which, by the way, is still happening, folks. It's still happening. Right. This is a, uh, a segue into clip number four, uh, which is the very maps that John was just talking about. And in this clip, uh, John is going to quickly talk to us about how redlining occurred in 239 cities. And again, and, and just to kind of underscore the importance of Kenny's point, um, this was happening uh, by the Federal uh, Housing Authority. So we're going to listen to John uh, uh, talk about that right now. So the federal government through the Homeowners Loan Corporation is going to create these redlining maps um, that dictate you know, the categories of areas and cities where lending should go, where it should not go. Um, they were created for 239 cities around the country, so they weren't created in every city, but what we see is the Federal Home Administration, they are backing loans. They have an underwriting manual that is putting in uh, the language of redlining. So they are base, basing their investment decisions, their insuring decisions on um, the concepts of redlining like, and you see language like, you know, detrimental influences, adverse influences, infiltration of different races. Um, and that is the context of, you know, how they are valuing neighborhoods and how they're valuing areas and where they want to put areas. So this, uh, the maps were created for 239 cities, but the FHA was insuring loans all over the country. So this is a system that was put in place all over the country and resulted in segregated towns and cities all over the United States. You know, when I never, it never fails that I feel kofefeid when I look at the past about how terrible. been sitting on that one. <laughs> how terrible uh, society has continually been. Um, and uh, John, did you want to kind of clarify any points there? I mean, I know that it's just largely used to be. And, and New Orleans, yeah, New Orleans was one of those 239 cities, obviously, right? It was. Um, uh, I think Shreveport was the other city in Louisiana that had had the maps, but. Yeah, the point we are trying to make is is this happened everywhere. This happened all over the country. That highest uh, graded mortgage that everybody wanted wanted was that FHA backed mortgage, and so they were, you know, when they put that in their underwriting system, that meant every lender around the country was was trying to meet that standard, um, and and we're we're using that that standard of, you know, what does this neighborhood look like and um, and and you know let's make sure that neighborhoods are you know are all white where we're we're putting most of our lending right it, it just again i just i sit here and stunned uh and this is why the importance of this uh of, of this exhibit is so inform is so important did you have anything you wanted to add to that <coughs> yes also um i wanted to also posit the question to the both of you as to why would an entity um associate low-risk um, customers, if you will, with people that are not of color? Why do you think? Because at the time, you had a lot of hardworking people. You had a lot of people that owned their own businesses and were very like financially astute and literate and could handle their money at the time. But as a whole, they were deemed as high-risk, these communities of color. 
Well, the system was being run by a bunch of racists and and. <laughs> Sorry, did I just kill? That was the punchline. Sorry, I didn't mean to. (laughs) Go ahead, Kenny. Did Uh, you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's and and um, it's painfully obvious. Yeah, like the answer. I mean, I think I think I might have like quipped this at when we're at the small center. It's like where you you yeah. I was just I was just about to say Mark Allen sort of asked stepped in it and asked this question. Was like, well, why did they do that? And it's like, well, Mark Allen. (laughs) Well, no, no, no. I think the question that I asked is this. I was going to admit, yeah, well, Mark Allen. (laughs) If if we're playing like you know the Family Feud version of American history, the answer most likely to like the question, why is this thing messed up and inequitable? The answer is racism right as 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 always i think the question was i asked was like who was the person that kind of initiated all this and and i had kenny and rashida and john all look at me like their faces puzzled like they're like duh dude racism hashtag racism american racism just good old-fashioned just inequity (laughs) and good old-fashioned let's use the federal government to create areas uh to create basically right is aren't they isn't fox news the first one to say that the government shouldn't be choosing picking winners and losers yeah. and this is a great example yes. of how yeah. winners and losers yes. were chosen. were chosen and yeah. and these winners and losers were gonna the winners were gonna win for many generations yeah. and unfortunately the losers um we, you know as an hiv doctor i pinpoint as uh, you know the 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 onset of hiv uh and other infectious diseases malaria i mean yellow fever was happening everywhere but it was not happening in the richest places uh in uh in new orleans is it as american as apple pie yes it is another point i want to make as as we're like we're on this Mm -hmm. is that i think one of the things that i walked away from the exhibit feeling is like What's particularly powerful about the the one board that has sort of like the full arc of everything Wait, on it? It's coming up next. I know, but I think just like a note about that that's particularly <laughs> powerful about it for, for when folks go see the exhibit themselves is that this seems really obvious, but seeing it laid out this way mm-hmm. is very helpful because like I think a constant trope we hear in the media is that like we got over that. Yeah. We right. we aren't doing that. Post racism, slavery happened X amount of years ago. Get right. over it. Mm-hmm. Like we had a black president. We had a black right. president. We're getting to equality. And I think what the board does really good and really well is that it shows that like every single piece of progress that we've gotten in this country was then followed by yet another subversive and like explicitly or racistly racially oppressive way to like try to stamp the foot back down. Yeah. It's like slavery ends and then we get Jim Crow. And then Jim Crow ends and then we get these unfair these unfair housing practices. And then and then you get the mass incarceration, then you get the crack 80s, the police, and then you get the war on drugs. And then you get and so like I think that like it's for I think that's one of the more sort of like poignant things that you sort of just like visually see when you when you look at the board is you see how it's just like every single time we stop one of these things mm-hmm. The it's like, white supremacy finds like another way. It's like, well, we're gonna stick our foot in your neck this way, right? And it's just like, it just keeps going. It's like white supremacy whack a mole. Yeah, exactly. And right. and so it's like for the you know like the folks on Fox News love to be like, I don't know what they're so complaining about. Right. That was so long ago. Right, right, right. Yeah. Where are their bootstraps? You know? Your white man voice is very bad. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> and it's the most captivating and also gut wrenching <laughs> portion of the exhibit as well. And we're going to talk about that right now. So before we do, let me just quickly say if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LP FM. This is Resistance Radio. Uh, my name is Mark Allendary, and that's Kenny Francis. It's really a pleasure uh, to have uh, on uh, with us the uh, 
uh, folks from Undesign uh, the Red Line, and we are going through uh, talking about the various elements of Undesign the Red Line. Uh, and it's actually an interactive exhibit exploring the history of race, class, and U.S. housing policy and how the legacy of uh, inequity uh, and exclusion continues to shape our communities. That is uh, showing right now at the Small Center. Kenny, where is the Small Center located? The Small Center is at 1725 Barone Street. Um, and for like <laughs> New Orleans, you give landmarks instead of street directions. So for folks who need landmarks, it's right next to the Ashe Powerhouse Theater and across from the Three Moses Apartments. There you go. Which I feel like more people probably know what I'm talking about. Now right. that I said and that. then, and it's also right next to the bank too, where people were some, oh, yeah, yeah. some of yeah. the uh, some of WHIVs actually some of the doors and, and windows that WHIV came from the bank. Rashida, do you want to tell us? So we're going to start. We're going to probably spend the next probably 15 minutes talking about Board Number Three. And uh, before we play your first clip about Board Number Three, I, I know that you have a. Um, your introduction to board number three is actually really quite good. So we're gonna play your clips. Amazing but do you wanna, is the word I would use. Right? Do you wanna you wanna kind of give us an amazing from the gut kind <laughs> of uh, intro? Because I know I'm just putting you on the spot of yeah. what board number three is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so board number three is basically showing you a timeline of over uh, 200 years. It starts with uh, slavery and the Civil War, and then it ends uh, at the point in the present day where we're at today. But I always like to point out on the board is the importance of the idea of capitalism and white supremacy and how that is so pervasive throughout American society, how it's influenced different policies and how it subjugates a lot of people of color to second class citizenship. So we're going to hear Rashida uh, standing at the board at the small center explained uh, to us uh, in the first of three clips uh, what the uh, what board number three is. So the third board, which is most is, is the most comprehensive board, shows redlining in a context of American history dating all the way back to the Civil War. Um, the third board starts with the Civil War being won by the Union, the Emancipation Proclamation happening, and also Reconstruction, the period where African Americans saw the most financial gains and financial growth um, that they have ever seen in America. But as a reaction to that, we have the policies that stem out of Jim Crow, which brings us to the convict leasing system, as well as sundown towns being implemented and the first racial zoning ordinance being carried out in Baltimore. Then we see a reaction from that from the U.S. government that repeals that act. Um, but New Orleans, um, in reaction to that, they implement their own zoning law, which reinstates racial zoning policies. And then amidst all of that happening, the Great Depression happens. The bottom falls out of the American economy. And we have the New Deal from that, which redlining arises out of. Wow, so there was a, a, a lot there uh, to talk about. Uh, maybe just kind of give us a quick little summary about that, and then I know I had a couple questions I wanted to ask you. Sure, sure. Uh, summary of all of the boards together? No, 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 just of that first clip we just heard. Sure, yeah. Um, so this is the basis of everything, all of the policies that we see, all of the movements that we see on board number three in the exhibit. The basis is um, from 1800s, from the 1800s to uh, 1930, we see a wave of racism and we see the pushback to it. We see the strides after the Civil War, which brought about the Reconstruction, which is always very important and also very um, 
it's not talked about as much as I would like it to because we often talk about Jim Crow segregation. We often talk about the different racial terrorism that people experienced well into the 1970s, but we don't talk about how did all of this come about? And I always like to point out it is because black people and people of color made so many strides during reconstruction so very quickly that it was combated with the quickness from various racist entities. Um, so you're saying it was a, a with every progress that happened, there was a uh, for every positive that happened, there was a strong negative uh, in the form, and that negative came in the form of, like Kenny said, just kind of white supremacy sticking sticking stepping on the necks of communities of color, especially yes. when there was any progress. You mentioned in that clip something about sundown towns. Can you explain to us what a sundown town is? I was really quite struck by that. I didn't, you know, somebody who who I, I feel like I have a very good understanding about these things in American history. I was even struck by this. Yes. So um, in certain towns, there were laws passed and also unofficial laws, unwritten laws, uh, stating that black people and other people of color could not be present after sundown or after a certain period, a certain uh, time frame. So essentially, people of color had a curfew in certain towns where they essentially had to go back on the other side of the tracks to their neighbors that they lived in. So it's kind of like a martial law, if you will. Folks could not be out and out and about. Uh, 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 and uh, and what would happen? I mean, I would imagine the worst atrocities would <laughs> would be considered uh, if they were out and about. Yeah. yeah, the typical terrorist acts, lynchings, and killings, right. beatings, yeah, of course, arrests. All the, all the horrible. And this practice continued until 1968. And like speaking of the, the movie you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Green Book, is like that's where that came from. Is that yes. um, who's I'm forgetting my mother would be embarrassed because I used to I used to like one of the ways that my mom raised me was like I would have to memorize all these like black history facts and I used to know the guy's name and I'm now blanking on it but there was a mail carrier who originated the Green Books which was essentially a guidebook. Explain what it, yeah, explain what so the Green Book essentially, was. For folks who don't know it is, the Green Books were essentially a guidebook created by a postman whose name, I, it's gonna no. come to me like at four o'clock in the morning. This, um, I'll look it up, go ahead. Um, it was created by this postman who essentially to avoid these sundown towns and these towns where essentially black people weren't allowed or wouldn't get service or wouldn't be able to stay in a motel um, or wouldn't be able to get food or anything or even like use the restroom or get gas for fear of lynching um, or just like outright being turned away or anything else in between. Um, Essentially he made a guidebook that started out as just like the regional New York area for black folks um, that were places that were safe, that they could sleep, that they could get food, that they could stop and get gas, that they could like stay in someone's home if they needed to. Um, And then eventually later editions got expanded through most of the United States. And like what's important about this time period is this is a time period where after the consistent um, insults and degradation of being um, not allowed to use public transportation uh, with their own free will, one, this is a time period where black families were starting to accrue the type of wealth that they could buy cars. And, and so a lot of families bought cars and that sort of like gave families sort of the autonomy and freedom that they couldn't have because of the oppression they were facing with public transportation and the inequities with that, but then like you can't stop anywhere, you, like, right. you can't get you gas can't, anywhere. Right. Can't and so this book essentially or... became like, here's a safe place to go get gas. Right. Here's a safe place to go, you know, get food on your your road trip. Right. And uh, to to be clear, this was called the Green Book because uh, the person who first wrote it was named Victor Green. Oh, that, sh- that should have made it easier <laughs> for me to remember. 
Um, you had, uh, uh, had mentioned, uh, that there was a ordinance that, uh, had been written. I, I think there was a Supreme court ordinance or ruling, um, in which, and if you just help me, I, am not going to, sh- I'm sure uh, I'm going to flub that the outlawed lines. outlawed racial zoning. That ordinance? outlawed racial zoning. But then New Orleans was like, yeah, 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 yeah. 1924. <laughs> explain, explain to us what happened here. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Buchanan versus Worley in 1917 outlawed that case brought about the outlawing of racial zoning ordinances that restricted people of color from living in certain areas by law. Um, and also we know that it was still happening outside of the law. But um, in 1924, um, New Orleans reinstated the racial zoning ordinance for New Orleans. So it just, how did they bypass the the law? I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but how did they, how did they get around doing that? Uh, I think John is a, uh, well, I mean, cities, cities can do anything and then they get sued and ultimately they have to get overturned. But during that time period, they can do anything they want. So that's what, I mean, eventually, you know, the law was overturned, but they, they didn't really care at the time they passed it. They were doing everything they could to kind of come up with their own variations of zoning law. So, you know, the New Orleans society had to get permission from a majority of the other, you know, race, uh, uh, other people of a different race neighborhood, right? So, you know, their minds... Which I'm sure that, that went they, over well. Yeah, right. right. Um, but, you know, one, so one interesting point, though, and, and so racial zoning is outlawed, but the Supreme Court says we don't really care about racial discrimination. It, that's not what we're worried about. We're worried about the right to contract, freedom for people to contract. So as long as it's one person agreeing with another person that you can't sell the property from here on out, sell that home to a person of color, that's fine. So that's when you see the rise of, um, you know, racial covenants that neighborhoods, you know, neighborhood associations, neighborhood associations are putting in, deed covenants that, you know, home sellers are putting in that said you can't, sell this property from here on out to person of color so that so you know it starts going from a a system of zoning to really system of you know that prop those private transactions right i mean it locks into contract into into contract law or locks into law these you know something that rashida you'd mentioned uh, there at the small center and here that just it just it guarantees generations of poverty amongst communities of color it just locks out all i mean for a country and i and i you know i I tell the story all the time when i think maybe our second or third show that kenny and i did together when i was like well this country was based on equity you know or something and kenny was like looked at me he's like yeah because you're white and i was like wow it was like schooled live on air you know and i'm sure i had a much better response than that (laughs) i'm pretty sure i was like i'm sorry which country you talking about yeah it was uh but you You know the the, one that was like founded off you said three fifths of uh you know that that was uh, yeah three-fifths of the person was actually what you said i was oh i remember what i said i remember what i said that because it's a it's a it's a point that i make whenever i run inside libertarians when i talk about the constitution i'm like oh you mean the document that talked about inalienable rights of free people while literally owning other human beings right cool yeah Yeah, that that that, that's the one i should care about that one um, so in clip, so this is a clip, this board, so uh, this is going to be the third board, uh, and this is part two. And in this uh, section here, Rashida talks about that the board is broken down into several components and several elements. And, and I think that 
you know, uh, as, as you will hear us say that, that the elements of this board really ties in together concepts. I think most thinking people have maybe thought about, but it really kind of ties in these issues all together in one place. And, and here, <clears throat> excuse me, Ms. Rashid is going to describe that to you right here. The third board is also organized into four separate parts that exist in about 30-year categories. The first portion, it talks mostly about the period of slavery and the beginning of the 20th century. The second portion, it talks about how racism was effectively baked into the American real estate system and also how the suburbs were subsidized and how the huge tax base um, because of white flight left the city. Then. On the third board, we have what is the decay of the city and how the decay of the city happened. What was the reaction from municipal governments and what exactly was happening in terms of um, planned shrinkage, um, different epidemics that arose out of various riots and civil rights movements that arose as a reaction to what was going on in larger American society. And then on the fourth board, we have where we exist today. Um, and what I always like to point out about this board is that this idea of capitalism and white supremacy is presented in the first board in the 1800s to turn of the century board. But I always like to point out to people that that is the core of what is all on the board and what the exhibit is really about because capitalism white supremacy has been so pervasive throughout the centuries, we see a lot of the same issues in the present day that we've seen in the 1800s. Yeah. I mean, Woo! yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, how do you top that? I, you just kind of summarized everything uh, right there. Um, did you want to kind of uh, respond to that or clarify anything? Not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't blame you. Right? Yeah. John, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Or? Oh, I do want to add something. Um, so when you talk about subsidizing suburbia and um, the creation of the suburbs and the construction of the highways, I also wanted to um, incorporate as a part of capitalism and white supremacy taking place throughout all of these different decades. Um, a lot of the people who advocated for the Federal Highway Act and the building of the interstates were the beneficiaries oh, of the construction I'm shocked. <laughs> of this because a lot of times like we always think about uh oppression in silos right but it's all very connected to capitalism and people's desire to make money on the backs of other people right yeah. um people so europeans enslaved specific uh, went to specific african countries to to, to uh, enslave specific ethnic groups because they knew it'd be beneficial to the crops they, that they wanted to grow in america so all of these things have this different yin and yang if you will a different balance between racism and oppression and subjugation of a people into a specific place to be controlled and profitability off of that right and this it's this constant cycle it's this sick cycle that only one group of people seem to be the beneficiaries of right and Wait, which one's that the, the white one. <laughs> yeah, and and just to be clear, and I think that this is an example I think everybody here in New Orleans can relate to, is that the interstate system that was built here in, in New Orleans... Wasn't uh, built through the Garden District, was no, it? No, it wasn't built uptown. 
It wasn't built uh, in uh, the French Quarter. In the French Quarter, wasn't. Uh, although we did see some evidence of uh, uh, with that big massive sinkhole, it was kind of interesting to see <laughs> with the, some of the beginnings of what was going to be the interstate. I think uh, a point I want to I want to make here because what this is when we learn about these things, right, and we dive deeper into all of these things, and I think at this point on Resistance Radio, we've covered sort of such a wide varying like degree of topics that it shows it just said like pretty much every single part of American life, the government has consistently intervened on a systemic level. Like when it's funny when people say that they don't understand what systemic oppression and what privilege looks like when it's like, there's all these examples that's just written down. That's explicit. That says here are all these systemic ways that the government consistently intervenes to oppress specific groups of people to the debt to their detriment and then in favor of other folks and then you have folks who say like well i don't understand where privilege is and it's like on a simple level it's that like well your government hasn't actively been trying to kill you for 300 right. years right there's your privilege right there right or how about all the go ahead john yeah i i think kenny hit the nail on the head i mean that's what the exhibit's trying to show especially this timeline section that's what it's trying to so- show is that you know things did not happen by accident the way things ho- are now or not just um you know did not just happen by accident or did not just you know occur because of um naturally occurring events right i mean it was coming from the top down it was things coming consistently from the government that put in place a structure that shaped the communities as we see them today yeah you know it, it reminds me of um you know, to a certain degree uh, of when uh, President Obama was talking about, you didn't build that, you know, that and the and the snowflakes that responded, you know, they needed to go find their safe space when they yeah. were all like. And it's, it's sort of amazing to watch sort of like the complete panic that white people yes, go through when yes. they feel even just like that a was, monochrom. Oh, it's of the like, snow, the safe space they needed. <laughs> the snowflakes um, came out. It's, it's fast. <laughs> it's like fascinating. Yeah. It's very, very fascinating. It's, it was, pro- it's projection, you yeah. know, it's projection and, and, and you're absolutely right. So, all right. I, I, I think probably the part that, um, that I know that Kenny really liked a lot. So, um, uh, was the oh, social move, the social, like no, 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 the oh. social <laughs> movements, <laughs> the social movements, <laughs> aspect of the board yes. uh, board number three and so um what was really fascinating about board number three uh that we've been sitting here talking about was that not only was there the historical aspect of things the look back and just see kind of the this white suppression uh and white supremacy that occurred over uh centuries in american history but then the amazing social movements that kind of grew out of that and the board really in board number three also takes a very nice look at at that and so we're going to hear about that right now uh and rashida's going to explain that to us right now and and hopefully we'll have you come back on and and let us know what your thoughts are on that so this is uh, the social movements associated uh with board number three also, what I want a takeaway for um, attendees of the exhibit to also be is that even though there are so many policies that you can visually see and take in that may emote you that show how racism was baked into American society, 
also on the other portion of the board, we also have all of the social movements that happen as a reaction to all of these racist policies, as a reaction to people being subjugated to second class uh, citizenship in America. And it starts in the 1800s and it goes all the way until the present day. So I like for people to know, even though there's all of this information that shows you how cities decayed and how minorities are being kept in a second class state, please know that there will always be a movement, a social movement that happens um, and, uh, and um, different reactions that happen to these unjust policies that will continue on um, until the end of time. Ooh, yeah, swoon. You, yeah, you're right. Ooh. Is all I have to say. Like I was, it just filled me up. When you I'm have like, to be filled up. Oh yeah, I, I it was funny. I went back to work and I was like, let somebody say something to me today, right now. Because the because the third board, I like to say, is the most depressing board because, as you both said, this board is the educational tool for showing how white supremacy white privilege and oppression works in America specifically. Um, because like we are constantly being told and being propagated to by people that don't want to take accountability. Well, we all had a fair shake. We all had the same start. I use my resources better, blah, 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 blah. But this tool is a visual representation of all of the different oppressive measures that went into subjugating people of color to a specific place and made sure they had no no um viable place in american society so with that being said uh as i mentioned in the clip there's always pushback to that we see the early civil rights movements happen in the turn of the century we see the the civil rights movement happening in the mid-century along with the climate movement as kenny referenced before talking about gordon plaza and how a lot of people of color were subjugated and relegated to living in the most polluted areas of cities and also and weren't told yeah and we're, and we're told <laughs> that you could oh, that's the only place you can live right right and on one of the redlining maps one of the red line areas is now known as the irish channel but people fail to realize a lot of that area was populated with different um, steam steam shops mm -hmm. and different factories and was and, and the area was surrounded by pollution, smoke, polluted waters and the like. And people had to be relegated to dealing with that type of environment. Go ahead. No, okay, yeah, um, and uh, uh, and and now when you think about it, the Irish Channel now probably the property there totally is, different. Yeah, sorry, gentrification. <laughs> yeah. Totally different. Not not quite the same as uh, and, it, and so so the point that you're making with that is I think about sort of like you know I didn't grow up in New Orleans, so I had sort of a I don't have sort of like a personal experience of that, but I think about redlining. I think about like where I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, spent most of my childhood in Brooklyn, and I think about how. New York was redlined in such a mm -hmm. way that people of color, specifically like immigrants, my family is from Trinidad and Tobago, mm -hmm. and it's no mistake that like Brooklyn for quite some time was basically all people of color, mm -hmm. um, and mostly immigrants, mostly blue collar to like um, to like mostly low collar, sorry, mostly blue collar to like low income families, mm -hmm. and then that happened with sort of like the white flight to the suburbs, which redlining and the exhibit explain, explains and like we basically weren't allowed in Manhattan and like there was a time where you couldn't catch a white person going across the bridge into Manhattan and then like these days you got white people living in Bed-Stuy Bed on purpose paying like Stuy's 17 paying like $1700 a month for our studio that's like the size of my living room and 
as someone from from Brooklyn, I find that wild. And like, and it's right. it's part of the exhibit hits on that where it's like redlining happened to first like put people there, and they're like, oh, actually, the city's cool again now, so y'all need to get out, right. and we're yeah. gonna jack back up the the, the property of these houses where people are living in places like Williamsburg, like East New York, where I grew up, in like Bedside, like Brown. There is a Starbucks in Brownsville. What? Like we couldn't even get a grocery store there when I was growing up, and. And so you see, like like we've said this whole time, how it's been systemic and it has been top down and it has been a part of the design of the system to like keep people oppressed and keep people out from participating. And you look at it in the sort of, I think what the exhibit does an amazing job of doing is showing it in this in a way that is accessible. I think that's like, I think that's probably as a, as a former educator that like, that's probably the most like oppressive part of it for me, for me is that like, these aren't simple topics to explain, and it explains it in an incredibly accessible way. Um, and as Mark Allen, I was actually leaving on Friday, and I really like want to applaud you guys for this. Is like there was actually a school group coming in, and it like made me feel really good to like see like a bunch of kids coming. It's like, yeah, y'all gonna learn today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're gonna learn your history today. Um, and so thank you guys so much for coming in. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, I want to say before we start to wrap up that you can find. Um, undesigned the red line at the the Albertina Small Center, which is seven seventeen twenty five, um, Barone Street, uptown. Um, but it's going to City you, Hall. If, I was gonna get there. Let me finish. <laughs> Jesus, can I get I, through a sentence without a white dude. guy interrupting me? Oh, God. dude. Um, uh, you know, seventeen twenty five Barone Street. <laughs> it's ne- it's like right across from the Three Muses, right next to the Ashe um, Power Theater. Also, as Mark Allen was saying, it's gonna be at City Hall this week. They're going to be showing the exhibit in City Hall. So if you'd like to go see it by City Hall and then, I don't know, stop by Kristen Palmer's place and say, hey, how about that you put some inclusionary zoning into your short-term rental ordinance? Or you can stop by the mayor's office and talk and talk about some of our like affordable housing policy. Or you can stop by city council chambers and say, hey, how about we, like, we raise some of the hotel taxes in order to pay for affordable housing? You know, that's that's all definitely or, you know, down the line. Or you so. can just say, or you know, stop by any of those offices and say, hey, you know, instead of spending more money on crime cameras or the jail, we could spend 16 million of that to get people out of Gordon Plaza. You know, any of those things. Remember, they're your representatives. Undesigned the Red Line is an interactive exhibit exploring the history of race, class, and housing uh, policy uh, and how this legacy of inequity and exclusion continues to shape our communities. You can see it at City Hall uh, starting next week. Uh, Ms. Rashida, who is the assistant director for the Albert and Tina Small Center for Collaborative Design at Tulane University, and also uh, John Sullivan, who's the senior program director for the state and local policy Gulf Coast for Enterprise Community Partners. Thank you guys so much, Kenny. As always, you're the best. I love you. We'll see you guys all next week. Thank you so much.